Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, Harshni and I spoke with Miles Franklin, a mechanical engineer with a focus on innovation and sustainable energy. His current role is as the lead engineer at Gravitricity. Gravitricity is a company developing grid-scale mechanical energy storage technology, combines the benefits of hydropower and lithium-ion batteries to provide a new solution to the same problem, how to store electricity. As always, we started by asking Miles to introduce himself and describe how he got to where he is today. I'm Miles Franklin, I'm a mechanical engineer. Um, currently, I am the lead engineer at a company called Gravitricity. We're a, a, um, a startup company developing a large scale energy storage system based in Edinburgh. The system we're developing is a mechanical energy storage. So we use very large weights um, and lift them using winches. When we're lifting them using winches, electric winches, taking power from the grid and converting that into gravitational potential energy. We lift, lift the weights up, hold them there, and then um, can sit there for as long as we like um, with the power stored, energy stored. Um, and then when uh, there's a demand for power back on the grid or it's a national grid or a local grid, we um, can turn the whole thing in reverse. Motors become generators and we put power back into the grid. So that's what I do right now. I graduated from Imperial College 10 years ago. Um, and in between, I've been doing various different things. I was based down in Bristol for a while, working at Dyson for three and a half years. Before that, I was briefly, uh, so straight after university, I was working in Sierra Leone for a year and a half, developing um, some low cost, what people would call appropriate technology, um, system so focus mostly on a low cost system for drilling um, boreholes for water so six inch diameter um, holes in the ground to, to, to then be able to put a pump in and make water uh, or to supply water and um, then Dyson for three and a half years making vacuum cleaners designing vacuum cleaners in this sort of early stage innovation bit um, and then after that moving up here to to Edinburgh and having this role. And then along the way, I've kind of kept my fingers in the, in the pie, is that the word, of, um, of the appropriate technology world. And I've had a few projects um, in Honduras, working on um, rainwater harvesting tanks. Um, so again, low-cost technology for sort of rural communities out there. Um, and also a, a cook cook stove, a uh, top-lit-up draft gasifier. So it's called a T-Lard. It's a special stove that um, is uh, it's a gasifier. But that means it um, heats the wood so that the, um, the sort of volatile combustible gases are released, and then, and then you burn those gases, effectively producing smoke and burning smoke. So then the, uh, the end result is a smokeless stove that also produces charcoal. The charcoal can be of interest if you get into the biochar world, which is essentially using charcoal as a way to put it back into putting charcoal into the soil to both improve soil quality and um, sequester carbon. 
um, by sort of locking it up in a in a very stable form, um, and also via some other appropriate technologies. Projects a bit of time in Tanzania, but a very short amount of time in Tanzania, supporting a project um, developing a motorcycle ambulance trailer. So that was uh, specifically aimed at um, women um, during maternity and then going into labour in a rural region of Tanzania where they had no um, good transport to the local health centres. And so then it was proposed that a good low-cost um, system that could be sort of locally sustained and locally maintained would be this motorbike ambulance trailer. So it's basically a, uh, a two-wheeled, quite quite built-up trailer that would get um, towed behind a, a motorbike. That was very interesting. I was just involved in the end of that project and went out to review it. Um, and then, and then now here I am working at Gravitricity, um, doing various different things. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about what you do in your day-to-day at Gravitricity and how did you go from like your previous job to doing this? At Gravitricity, so we're, we're at a very exciting moment right now where we've just completed the construction and finished the commissioning of a 250 kilowatt demonstrator. Um, so that looks, um, it's, it's a 12 meter tower and with then another frame on top of that. And then below that tower are two 25-ton weights. And then we have two winches. Each one has is 125 kilowatts, but then lift those weights. So it's quite a big project. Um, and so we've been very focused on the build and commission that project for the last six months. So it has been very busy um, and very intense, but it's a very exciting moment for us that we're now testing that. So we're sort of feeding in uh, what we call yeah. set points, so sort of speed profiles into the system. And then, uh, and then looking, we've got lots of different sensors throughout the system and we're measuring the performance and the behavior of that system. So that's where we are now. So I'd say in the last kind of two weeks, or last month, we've kind of had to pivot away from very intense um, kind of mechanical engineering. So both from a sort of design point of view, so taking things from a concept through all of the analysis always takes quite a lot of time and you uh, it's, it's a surprise the first time you get to these kind of projects is that doing the analysis itself doesn't take that much time, but then doing the checking and the approval and the documentation of that analysis takes a long time. So it doesn't sound exciting, but um, it is, it's quite a, um, it's a process that needs to be rigorous when you are developing um, things that can kill people. So it's 50 ton weights and uh, quite high power systems that we need to be very careful and deliberate how we're doing it. So for that period of time, we're doing um, lots of lots of applied mechanical engineering. Now the focus is um, um, testing this this demonstrator system. So that's designing the test program, implementing that test program, and beginning to analyze the data. And also that means that the we have a, a team of um, ten at the moment, and that's built off of different some people on the commercial side, some mechanical engineers. Um, someone focused on the sort of control and simulation side of things. And so the, those, those guys who are sort of more pure mechanical engineering, we're now moving some of their time onto the full scale system development. So, you know, we've, we've as a company developing this technology, which is a very early stage technology and early stage company, we, um, the demonstrator that we've just built is a really big stepping stone for us to, prove the concept, prove the idea, test it, 
prove the ability of our company to do things. But then we need to really quickly say, okay, what's the next thing? What's the big next project? And so some of the other, some of the team are really focused on testing the demonstrator, but the rest of the team, we need to switch them on to um, the, the, the kind of conceptual work um, that then feeds into the, the big full-scale system that comes after. But the point I'm saying is like with any sort of small company where it's kind of, we're focused on this one thing, what we're doing changes a lot. You know, the last six months we were doing all this kind of design, building up to commissioning. We've now commissioned it. So now part of the team is, is looking at um, the, the simulation of that system and the control of that system and the analysis of the data, that kind of stuff. And then some of the rest of the team are now moving on to the concept design and the kind of optimization. Um, this word I hate, but it's quite useful, optioneering of the various different options and configurations for the, um, the full-scale system. Um, some of the rest of the team have to get focused on that now. And I guess me personally, so I sort of lead that engineering team, I get involved in different bits of it. Um, and also the E, depending on your personality, the uh, either the, the positive or the negative of being in a startup is then I get, have to do lots of other things as well. So we don't, we don't have a HR team. We don't have a PR team. We don't have a, we do now have a finance man. So that helps. But so there's um, various different other things that, that I have to do to kind of bridge the gap between the technical work and the commercial work. For instance, yesterday, so we're doing, we're doing a fundraise at the moment. Um, so we're going to start, it'll be open from the 6th of May and that'll be a 30 day equity crowd raise, which basically means um, people are buying shares in the company, but people can invest any amount. So from 10 pounds up to a thousand pounds, whatever, um, or a hundred thousand pounds. Um, uh, so for that, yesterday evening, we were doing a, a virtual tour of our demonstrator for the existing shareholders. So then yesterday I had to do a virtual tour. So lots of different things. And the other half of your question was, how did I move to this? Yeah, it was, it's, it's quite different from vacuum cleaners. It was a, a quite a sudden and distinct step to the side, I would say. Um, and I think that's, that is a great benefit a great sort of of engineering broadly is that there are certain parts of the engineering skill set that are very um transferable it is also very easy to accidentally specialize a lot of people end up doing that you know if you end up working on hydraulics in something really niche like street sweeper machinery then you, you very quickly build up very specialist knowledge in that thing. And then people will value that knowledge. So it becomes hard to, to move away from that field. Um, anyway, so I, I was working in vacuum cleaners. Um, I worked for Dyson on that for three and a half years. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I got a lot out of it. Um, but I was not passionate about vacuum cleaners um, in the end. And uh, so, yeah, I... I was uh, looking for alternative um, ways to direct my energies that I was more passionate about. I studied mechanical engineering, but whilst I was doing that, I did do one course that was run by the electrical engineering department at Imperial. That was really good. That was on kind of was it called sustainable energy systems? I think it was. So it was kind of like um, full system view of 
of energy systems as they developed. And it's a very nice kind of dynamics of those big systems. You know, as you get like, you get lots of renewables, certain, it sort of has certain, certain impacts on, on the rest of the system, you know, the stability of the system changes because, um, because, you know, the, the renewables are intermittent and the, um, the way that those renewable assets, wind and, and solar are attached, like connected to the grid, um, mean that the, there is less um, inertia uh, offered to the grid. Basically, when something changes, you know, if there's some, some big abrupt change on the grid, like uh, either a loss of supply or a loss of demand, then when you've got lots of big thermal generators, a big coal power, coal-fired power plants, then um, they have a big rotating mass, basically the, the, the parts of the system that generate the power. There's lots of rotating mass. That offers the grid some inertia so that the response of the system to those abrupt changes is damped. I, you know, there's not, you know, if you have a big loss of, of um, supply or demand, that's not seen as an abrupt change in the frequency of the grid when you've got all of that thermal plant effectively because you extract energy from from the kinetic energy of all those rotating masses. As soon as you go to loads and loads of wind and solar, even if they're uh, capable of delivering the right amount of power, um, you don't have that same dynamic. So there's all these different interesting things that happen as soon as the grid starts changing, which is changing rapidly. And you know, even in the last month, the UK, the US and the EU have all like massively brought forward their decarbonisation targets. So things were already moving fast and now moving faster. So the point was, there's, a, there's some really nice dynamics in this kind of whole system view of, of power systems that I, I quite liked. I'm uh, very personally motivated by trying to develop systems, tools, things that can help us in this decarbonization game. Um, and so I found this opportunity. This At that point, Gravitricity had just got a government grant to do a kind of quite initial study. So I was the first employee and uh, yeah, it was a bit of a, not brave leap, but uh, an uncertain leap. I had 10 months funding and no idea where it was going to go next. Um, but it was, it was a good choice. Um, and uh, yeah, I've had a great time ever since. What do you think makes Gravitricity better than say sort of hydro or batteries? Like what are the advantages to it? Yeah, it's a great question. And you, you've, you've given great examples. So pump, pumped hydro um, as a storage mechanism is still, so, you know, all, all of the press is around kind of lithium iron doing everything these days. But in terms of the global grid-connected energy storage, so big, static, um, large-scale energy storage, pumped hydro is over 90% of the grid-connected storage. So it's still doing the vast majority of the work. Um, and it's because it's really, when you build a pumped hydro plant, you can build a lot of energy capacity. You, know, you have a very large lake filled with water and each cubic meter of water represents some kind of quantum of energy storage. Um, the, the other really kind of great advantage of pumped hydro is that it lasts a really long time. You know, you can kind of get decades of, energy uh, decades of kind of service out of a pumped hydro plant and 
you can cycle it as many times as you like. So it's, it's, it doesn't, the, the performance, the capacity of the system doesn't degrade as you use it. Now, lithium iron, which is the kind of the big new kid on the block for energy storage, has become exciting because the costs have dropped very rapidly. I think most people would say that the costs have dropped very rapidly because of phones and electric vehicles. And then the kind of the grid side of that, big static applications have um, absorbed that cost benefit. And lithium ion is also been proven to be very good in that it can respond really quickly. Um, so where the big pump hydros in the UK, I don't know exactly what their responses are. I think if they're, if they're not exporting at all, they have different modes. So they can be either, they can be in like spinning. I don't remember the names of it. They have different modes, but you're talking orders of minutes for them to be able to go from not generating to generating out. Um, lithium iron is contracted in the UK in under a second within certain markets that's contracted. So it can respond from zero to full power in under a second. Um, and I think it can actually respond much more quickly than that. It's just not requested by the contracts. Um, so lithium is really good in that you can respond really quickly. Um, it's really dynamic. And so very good for the frequency balancing stuff, which is what you need more and more of as you get more and more renewables. The problem with lithium ion is that is each time you cycle it, like the battery in your phone, you, you deteriorate its performance. So it only lasts a certain number of cycles. And that number of cycles is, uh, is, is, is not very large. And so if it's something you want to use lots of times, then um, you quickly um, destroy the thing just by using it. So what we're kind of trying to achieve here is the long life of pumped hydro. It's a mechanical system. We can cycle it, cycle it, cycle it, and it's fine. Um, with that um, kind of really good dynamic performance of lithium-ion, so we can go from zero to full power in under a second. Um, you can vary that power continuously um, and do all these different kinds of things. That's the medium length answer. So you take the benefits that you get from hydro pump and then take out the negatives of lithium ion in a way. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I've, I've oversimplified it in that there's, there's other benefits and, you know, the, the other benefit of pump hydro is that kind of the, the massive scale of energy storage you can get, um, which you're not going to be able to match with a gravitricity system. Um, and the other benefit of lithium ion that I've not said is that it's really um, flexible in that basically it's in a shipping container. You can go and put it somewhere in a shipping container for a certain period of time. And if you want to then move it, you lift it up and you move it somewhere else. Mm. So that's great. So we're never going to have that. Um, in terms of like that locational flexibility, pumped hydro is awful in that you need a very well, like naturally designed mountain and you need to be able to put a lake, you know, just that's oriented beautifully. Um, so we have much more flexibility than that in that we can go to some place and, 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 and sink a shaft. And that, the cost of doing that will, um, will vary from geology to geology. So um, it will be more cost effective in some places than others. Um, but, but you can do it. You, know, you can go to where you want and, and, and set up a system. But unlike lithium ion, you won't be able to then pick it up and move it somewhere else. I'm just following up on that question. Um, nowadays, maybe more than ever, there's a lot of emphasis on considering the whole life cycle of any system when looking at the carbon footprint and things like that. 
Um, is that something that has been taken into consideration when developing the Gravity City technologies? And uh, how does it compare with these other uh, technologies? Um, so we did, along with um, Edinburgh University, do a life cycle assessment. We've done it a couple of times in different ways. The last time we did it was last year. I don't, I can't quote you all the various numbers off the top of my head, um, but it was favourable. The um, In a comparison to lithium-ion, there are some serious um, issues with the, the lithium-ion supply chain. Um, so, you know, there's, there's some, some unstable regions of the world with poor care of workers where lots of the raw materials come from. And they're also very energy-intensive processes, you know, you know extracting lithium and then cobalt and all these other things that, that um, need to go into lithium-ion batteries. So in the comparison to, to batteries like that, um, the, the gravitricity system um, looked good um, from a life cycle assessment perspective. Um, but one of the key things for us was that there's a lot of concrete required um, and concrete has a very high carbon footprint. Um, so even with that included, um, comparison was positive, but it offers a very um, big opportunity to um, work with people who are working on low carbon concretes, which there are lots of people doing. Um, and if we can, that, that sort of unlocks a major reduction in, um, in the carbon footprint of the whole system. I think the other big contributor is steel. Um, you know, producing steel, again, is quite carbon intensive, big sort of smelting plants. Um, and again, that's where there's, there is research into um, electric arc furnaces and things for, for smelting at lower carbon. And in fact, I think, you know, in the UK recently, there's all this controversy around the, the, the government approving the build of a new coal mine, a deep shaft coal mine in the UK. It was the first one in decades. And it was specifically for coking coal for um, steel production. And the big kind of counter argument to that is that we shouldn't be focusing on extending our dirty methods of industry, we should be investing in the alternatives. And in fact, someone recently got in touch with us who want to do a project trialing a small scale electric a smelting process. And because there's a kind of surge in power and they had a limit on the grid power available, wondered whether we could partner with them to provide energy storage services so that they could test their smelter. So there's a nice circle there. So do you think the material side is the, the main sort of innovation that needs to happen to take gravitricity from like a small scale project to being one of the major parts of the grid? Or do you think there are other innovations that need to happen? Or is it just time? I think there's, yeah, there's, there's a few challenges. So broadly, our design philosophy is to avoid innovation as much as possible, which sounds like a poor sell, but um, effectively the, the, the system is the combination of a number of existing mature technologies in a new arrangement to provide a new function. So we've got sort of winches that um, are already used either in mines as mine hoists or in offshore work for lots of different um, lowering and raising and installing jobs. So people have designed lots of winches. We don't need to start from scratch on that front. Um, in the underground world, there's um, 
all of the kind of shaft design, shaft lining, the shaft sinking, all these kind of things are very well understood and maintaining that environment. And there's the motors, the power electronics that supply the motors and the grid connection with transformers and these things, blah, blah, blah. So the, the aim, wherever possible, is to kind of bring those things together and um, minimize technical risk by using things that have been used before and are well understood. That's not possible in all the parts of the system. So the weights don't look like anything that I know to exist in other industries or sectors. And so there is a definite need for innovation. And so the weights will be kind of novel concepts developed specifically for this. Um, and then the other obvious area that's, that, that is completely novel is the control system and how we, how we develop that control system to do, um, to do a kind of energy storage services job, which would be very different from a lifting job that other winches might need to do. So I think that on the control system, there's some very exciting challenges to try and get the, the power quality and the kind of response and performance of the system as good as possible. On the mechanical design, there is also, I mean, whilst I'm saying that winches exist, they need to be adapted and there's quite a lot of interesting kind of configuration design questions um, in terms of what that whole system should look like. And if, let's say, um, the, the gravity energy storage technologies were to be used to support the grid, like what would the scale of those storage systems have to be like to be able to support the whole UK? How big of an area would you need? Uh, I mean, I guess we're not expecting like 100% of it to happen now, but if there was a significant portion of that to go to intergravity energy storage how much land would be required and things like that wow um that is a big question um i think that you know with all of these really ambitious decarbonization targets that we have the key is always going to be in lots of different technologies being employed um in parallel to get to the overall aim so i think it would be uh, unrealistic to say that all of the um all of the uh, energy storage required is going to be gravity energy storage. I think it also wouldn't be uh, a good solution. And so you need, you know, one layer above storage. You need different types of flexibility in the grid. So storage is just one source of, of flexibility. Other sources might be interconnectors to other big grids. So, you know, in the UK, we have interconnectors to France. I think we have an interconnection to Norway. And that allows us, you know, basically, basically enlarges the size of the grid so you can kind of benefit from the flexibility that that gives. The other major one that we should do a lot more of and not is demand-side response. So rather than trying to get better control of your supply, trying to get a better control of your demand. So that is what smart meters is all about. But um, we'll also, you know, as we electrify more and more stuff so electrifying heat with heat pumps and electrifying transport with electric vehicles and electric buses and trains all these things blah blah, blah. and it comes way more opportunity for that um and then yeah lots more storage <laughs> what i i don't have an answer for what proportion of the uk would be taken up the, the kind of proposal splits there's, there's two big options one is using disused mine shafts so using decommissioned pre-existing mine shafts, those tend to be about seven meters in diameter and um, 
It doesn't matter how deep they are. And if you're sinking new shafts to do a similar job, I think it'd be slightly larger diameter. So let's say uh, 10 meters diameter. The options, the system options split again in terms of single weight systems, one system with just one weight you lift up and down or a system which has a lot more energy capacity by having lots of different weights, which you can put into the shaft and take out of the shaft to increase the, 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 the total energy capacity. Um, then, you know, so let's say you had a 10 meter shaft and you also need an area next to it to store, you know, 10 weights stacked two on top of each other. You're still using quite a small area. And from one system like that, let's say you can get 10 megawatt hours or 20 megawatt hours. So um, I, I don't know off the top of my head the projections for how much energy storage is required for various different uh, scenarios in the UK. But I think we've got plenty of space. And what does um, the roadmap for Gravitricity look like from where you are today and what your target would be maybe in 10 years? And how do you plan to get there? These are great questions. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the least articulate on that. You should ask our MD, Charlie. But um, yeah, so we've, we've just completed this, this, um, this big milestone, as we said, of building this demonstrator and now we're testing it. Um, the next um, big project has to then be underground. So this, this demonstrator was, was in a tower not because we think the future is above ground, but because um, it's more practical for the purposes of demonstration um, and simpler for the purposes of completing a project because it's easier to build a tower than dig a deep shaft. Um, so the next project needs to be underground. Um, it needs to be bigger scale um, and big enough that the we can probably prove the, the ability of the system to provide services which can be contracted. Um, so that's the next big project. There is somewhere in our business plan specific dates for those things, which I don't hold in my mind. But let's say, you know, the next 12 months will be required for us to nail down what that project looks like, where that project is, exactly what the scale of it is, um, various different features of the design what we might call the feed, so the front-end engineering design, so the kind of high-level um, concept design and, and, and first costing, which takes you to the point of you know what the project is, you know with quite um, a low level of inaccuracy what cost of the project is, and then you can look at financing that project. Um, you're then looking at then another period of more detailed design once you've funded that project, um, and then... After that period, then you have to implement that project. So that means, you know, going through the different lead times to procure and manufacture the, the, the different parts of the system and install it and then test it. Um, so there is, you know, a good couple of years of time going into that next big project. Um, and that's where, you know, this, this game of kind of big, heavy industrial the Technology development very like is so different from the world of vacuum cleaner development, where you know you can you can iterate through four different prototypes in you know depending on the complexity of the project, but you know a, a few months if you need to. Um, this is this is clearly a different game, um, partly because of the scale of things. It takes longer to make um, and source very big things, 
um, but also because of the costs involved. It's, um, it's a bigger job to fund a 10 million pound project than it is to fund a 50 grand project. Um, anyway, so that, that's the big project. Um, and then after that, um, you know, we're continuously developing relationships with people who own mine shafts and people who um, are experts in sinking mines and people who own land. So over that same period, we will be developing the, um, the project plans for a set of other different projects and we'll then be looking to implement them. So I guess after that, you might get to the point where you're running two projects in parallel, um, feeding in all the lessons that have been learned, um, which, you know, in that very early stage, the cost reductions come very quick. So, um, you know, you'd expect the that first underground project to be quite a large percentage more expensive than the one that comes three time, you know, three, three projects later. And then, yeah, so it moves into to more and more commercial projects. In terms of how many installed commercial projects would our, what does our business plan say in 10 years' time? I don't know exactly what it says. But yeah, you know, it needs to be for us to have fulfilled our ambitions and kind of proven, proven the success of the system. It needs to be quite some number. I mean, not hundreds, that's not feasible, but tens. So you mentioned the work, working for Dyson a couple of times, and I was just wondering like the comparison between working at Gravitricity and working at Dyson or, or the other other jobs you've done and also which has been your favourite? Um, I think so. I've, I've only worked at sort of quite big companies or very small companies, not really anywhere in between. So I guess my experience is quite um, binary in that respect. But based on that experience I do have, I think it's... Um, very personality type dependent. So Dyson is a big company. In some ways, it doesn't have all of the characteristics of a big company because it's it's grown in a very rapid and slightly strange way. So you know, it's 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 basically kind of doubled in size, not quite, but you know, it's it's, it's expanded rapidly over a period of twenty five years. Um, so it's got a lot of kind of. That gives it sort of lots of freedoms in some ways, but also a sort of lack of certain systems that would be expected in big companies that have been around for longer. Um, and so, you know, in a big company, there is a lot more structure and process and support. You know, there are, you know, IT support um, people and there's a stationary cupboard. The first time I went to Dyson and there was a stationary cupboard and I could have free pens and pencils every day. I was ecstatic. Um, and, you know, there's cafes and there's social clubs and these kind of things. So, you know, in big company, there's a, a lot of support. Um, I guess there's probably a lot of opportunity for those people who are proactive to find it to kind of move up quite quickly. And so some people love that. For me, all of that process and procedure and things, I found it quite claustrophobic, I would say. So, in the opposite, in this tiny company that I'm in, um, which is bigger now, we you know we start to develop some some processes of ourselves of our own. When I first joined, there was nothing. There was you know there was three of us in an office, um, and there was no structures, no support. You know, if you want some IT equipment, then you have to find it. If you want to fix the computer, you have to do it. So anything you need to do it yourself. Um, for me, 
I enjoy that. I find that quite um, uh, quite exciting. So it suits my personality well. Other people, I think, would find it tedious um, and frustrating that they couldn't, they didn't have other people to deal with the other stuff so they could just get on with their core work. So I think it, it depends on the person on that one. Um, again, yeah, I guess we've talked a bit already about sort of whether or not the um, kind of the end aim of the work is important for me, it is. And so I struggled at times with the kind of the Dyson world because effectively, you know, I was investing my energies in carefully engineered vacuum cleaners. And I guess from my own personal perspective, if we as a civilization invested less of our energy in vacuum cleaners and more of it in the great problems of our time, then I think we'd, uh, we'd be doing very well. You know, I think there's a lot of misspent in ingenuity and, you know, if, yeah, if we could, you know, if, if all of the time, if we just had, if we had no carpets and we all just had, you know, dustpans and brushes, and then uh, we made some other simplifications like that and we put all of our, our energy, our, you know, our new energy that would be released into, uh, you know, climate change problems, into poverty alleviation problems, into all these different things. I think that would be, that would be wonderful. Um, but that's by the by. Um, so I think, yeah, like, I guess that's another differentiator between the different things I've been involved in. Um, I've also been involved in these various different things in, in other parts of the world. And yeah, that again is a completely different way of working that doesn't suit everyone. Um, I enjoy it a lot. There's a lot of richness in that. Also via Dyson, I had some really interesting projects working in Malaysia, working in China that um, were, were real positives for me. So, I mean, yeah. I didn't tell you which one's my favorite. I don't know. They're all different. With regards to working in in a startup, especially like Gravitas, you've said there's like about 10 employees, so quite a small number. Would you say that the hierarchy within the company is quite flat in a way? And is there like more expectation or more workload on each individual, given that you're working on such a big project and there's just like 10, 10 of you? How, how does that look? Yeah, it's a it's a very relevant question. Yeah. We just promoted someone today. So uh, for, the, um, for the first time, we put another layer into our hierarchy. But broadly, yes, it's quite flat. I think we would, we would aim to maintain that. Um, in terms of workload, yeah, I mean, I think there is a sort of like a caricature or a stereotype of startup life being quite intense. I think that's probably fair. Um, I think that we as a company are very intent on ensuring that people do have a, like a really positive work-life balance. And so, you know, people are encouraged to decide to work less than five days a week. So four and a half days a week or four days a week, obviously they get paid less of so their salaries prorated, but for most people, it's still a good decision. Um, so um, we're very keen that we don't build a kind of long hours uh, culture, but it is also the case that if startups are successful, they're always expanding. You know, there's always a kind of expansion of our of what we're doing, and inevitably, maybe not inevitably, but for us so far, we always recruit like after it gets painful. So, you know, we kind of, we're growing what we're doing. We're kind of being successful in respect, you know, kind of, we've got some, some new funding to do this and we've 
we started this and it's really exciting. And it's, you know, you kind of have to say yes to things because we, you know, we're looking for opportunities. That means then things grow. When things grow, then we've got the funding to, um, to recruit more people. Um, recruitment is always a challenge because when you need to recruit, it's because you need more, uh, more resource, more people, more man hours. But um, the process of recruiting consumes quite a lot of man hours. So it's, it's, a, it's quite, it's quite a, an annoying catch-22 there. Um, but yeah, so I think, we, um, I think it is true that the startup life can put some stresses on people. And I think you know, different companies manage that differently. We are trying to manage that very positively. You know, over the last few months, we've been building up to the, the, the build of the demonstrator. Me and a number of other people had to work very hard. And now we're trying to consciously give people some space to recover and re-energize so then we can kind of all, all um, stay, stay afloat and, you know, make sure that well, we spent slightly less time with our family over that three months that we kind of concentrate a bit harder on that for a while. But yeah, it's not for everyone. I would say that is the case. I think some maybe bigger, not necessarily bigger, but more established, stable companies, especially ones that work on kind of a project basis, the, uh, the workload is probably more consistent, more predictable, and much more to some people's tastes. So there's like big momentum in the UK moving towards net zero, and the government as well has been putting a lot of emphasis on like companies developing new renewable energy technologies, but also uh, storage technologies. Uh, is that something that Gravitricity has been able to benefit from or maybe has helped Gravitricity in some way? So, yeah, in two, two, two respects. One, we have benefited, benefited definitely from direct government support. So the demonstrator project was part funded by a government grant. Um, and with the type of R&D we're doing, it's very difficult to see a way that we could do it without that. Um, at this stage. So yes, we have benefited significantly from that. The, the part of government that deals with those things is um, constantly changing and the structures that uh, they use. So they have this, this agency called Innovate UK, which is, um, which is in charge of kind of designing and awarding sort of a, a budget of grant support for various different things. That's changed a lot recently. Yes, it remains to be seen whether or not those changes will make it harder for us to get more support. It's possible. Um, Brexit also doesn't help. There was a, a, a number of different European um, funding opportunities which are no longer accessible to us. Some of them, we can still, still be involved in projects. We can still lead projects, but not directly fund our own work in those projects. So there are some ways around it, but it, it's not helpful. And then in terms of raising private money, then yes, there is definitely a momentum. I think that's a nice way to put it. Um, and so, you know, when we are um, raising funds, and so we'll be doing it, I'll, I'll send you a link. It'll be, it's quite fun to track it. So we'll go live to people who we've already registered on the 6th of the May and something like five days later, we go live to sort of open publicly and then, and then it's a very exciting moment for us. And then we sort of see the investment coming in. Um, and you see that, you know, there are people of all different scales 
as in, <laughs> I don't mean small people and big people. I mean, people putting in 10 pounds and some people putting in 100,000 pounds, um, these kind of things. Um, and, you know, some of those engage with us. And a lot of them, I think, are driven by a sense that this is a moment of change um, and that, you know, there are different technologies um, required. I think the kind of simple but good message seems to have got through to a lot of people that energy storage in many respects is, is a key to the lock of decarbonizing energy networks. Um, and so, you know, even people who don't know a lot about power systems or, or really engineering at all have this, you know, you say I'm working in energy storage, they're like, oh, energy storage, that's the key, isn't it? And so there's, there's definitely that message has got through to people, which is really nice. Um, and yeah, I think it, there's definitely, I agree yeah, that, all of these kind of brought forward targets give give people more confidence to invest in things that are going to be required so technologies that are going to be required for those for those targets thank you i think yeah well, i'm kind of conscious of time maybe we can take a final question if you have a question beth i suppose a good question to ask on all of these episodes is what advice you would give to the generation of engineers coming up like the next generation I guess engineering is a very broad church. You know, there is so much different stuff going on, so many different types of ways to work with so many different types of companies or, you know, even without companies, you know, doing freelance stuff, doing this, doing that. But, um, it's really possible for everyone to kind of work towards a role that works for them, which I think is great. And I think there's lots of opportunity to, to move around, to do something for a while and move somewhere else. Despite that, I think quite a lot of people do get stuck in engineering roles that they don't find super stimulating. You know, there are like a lot of, a lot of projects out there or, or companies that really benefit from someone doing the same thing repetitively for 30 years. And it was quite, it's, it's quite useful for the company or for the projects for someone to do that. Um, and so I guess, um, I think if anyone finds themselves in that situation, it's an option. That's what I would say is, you know, if, if you decide to be proactive, go out and find the projects, the companies, the ways of working that you find exciting um, and make them happen, then, then you can, you can do it. Um, you know, we as a small company give much more time to those people who reach out to us in proactive ways um, and to kind of come with an obvious passion even if they're lacking in experience. And, you know, I, I remember when I was looking for jobs, my dad always really annoyed me by saying, well, just email them. Just, you just email them. I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm like, it's not how it works. You can't do it. But it actually is how it works. And when people contact us out of the blue, if they come and they've got some energy and some passion, we'll talk to them. And often, you know, it's not the right time. But because, as I said earlier, recruitment is very energy intensive. If, you know, I've got someone on the edge of my mind when it comes around to recruitment, then probably you will be like, oh, let's call that guy and see if it works. And it doesn't always, but it's just so worthwhile just sowing those seeds. This, this job I first heard about, I knew about because I went to it. In fact, I signed up for a talk that I didn't even go to. And because I'd signed up, I got a mailing list, which was basically the only place that they'd advertise this role. It was terribly advertised. Um, and it happened, but you know, it's like, it's sowing those seeds. Like also the, the role I got in Sierra Leone was because 
six months before I'd emailed one guy saying, if you've got anything coming up, let me know. He forgot. And then I bumped into him in a corridor and then he remembered. And it's just, just sow the seeds. You know, think of the things you, you might be passionate about and might want to do. And then sow the seeds and some of them will, will come through. And then you've got, you're just giving yourself a great chance to, to be doing exciting things you're passionate about, which is wonderful. That's really great advice. And yeah, definitely networking does pay off. <laughs> okay, so usually around the end, we do this quick rapid fire session where we ask you a few not too difficult questions. So the first question is, if you weren't an engineer, what would you be doing? That's a good question. I think I might be a tree surgeon or I'd work in some kind of um, like uh, neuroscience and criminology space. Find that very interesting. Or in forestry, forestry protection, not agroforestry. The next question I was going to ask you actually comes in three parts. It's what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the following words? I'll give you three words. So the first one is innovation. Oh, uh, exciting. Uh, net zero. <laughs> Challenging. And the final one is teamwork. Essential. Very good. Thank you very much. So we've now come to the end of the episode. Is there anything else you would like to say to our listeners before we end this episode? I guess the other thing I can say, if, if anyone uh, is very passionate about gravitricity or anything we do, the team will continuously be expanding if we achieve all of our goals. So keep an eye on our website. We do have a um, uh, on our jobs page on our website, like a, a sign up for a mailing list for um, for jobs. So when we post new jobs, we would send things up to there. So that's a good idea. I guess I have only myself to blame if you reach out, uh, reach out to us and try and talk because that was my advice. So, um, you know, reach out and come and talk. Great. Thank you. So we'll make sure to put a link to that in the description box. Thank you for coming on Ingenious. It was really good having you and all the best with the projects that are coming up at Gravitricity. They all re look really exciting and I'm, I'm excited to see what's going to happen next. Perfect. If, if either of you find yourself in Edinburgh, come and see us and we'll, um, we'll, we'll show you around. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on the SoundCloud.